listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo and Thomas Neff. Yes, it's episode 66 of the Northern Football Podcast. I'm Peter Galindo, joined by Alexander Gonge Ruzik. No Thomas Neff due to life commitments, but that's okay because we power on. How are you doing, my friend? Am I still an emergency call up in this case? Or I guess this is why I was signed to a contract. Like, we fill in as needed. So, uh, yeah. we, we miss Thomas greatly, but, uh, I guess it's good to know that I'm officially on standby. I guess before the only difference is that you'd uh, sloppily message me last minute and uh, here I'm ready. Exactly. You were the NFP booty call. Now you're number one. You're our go-to now. You know what I mean? Uh, just a reminder before we dive into all the Canadian soccer goodness that uh, you should subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss any episodes. If you're an Apple or Spotify user, leave us a rating and drop a review on Apple while you're at it. So we'll begin the show with the Canadians Abroad Roundup as it was a busy weekend for Canadian players overseas. Alfonso Davies went the full 90 minutes in Bayern Munich's wild 3-1 loss to Mainz on Saturday as they inch closer to the end of the Bundesliga season there. Jonathan David came up short in the Canadian versus Canadian battle in Ligue 1 this weekend as his Lille lost 3-0 to Ike Ugbo's Trois. David is still on the one goal for 2022. Ugbo, however, drew and converted a penalty for Trois' second goal in that victory on Sunday morning. So Alex, considering Ugbo has a purchase option in his loan for what is apparently a reported 4 million euros, what are the chances that becomes permanent now that they look to be safe for this season? Very high. Like, I'm pretty sure the reported purchase option, like, they can only trigger it if they stay up too. So, obviously, it's not fully safe. I think they're pretty much safe from the top, the bottom two in the direct drop. So, there is a slight chance that they could hit the playoffs. I think three games to go, about three points off that. But so far, if you beat a team like Lille, as they did in convincing fashion, they've ever since Ek uh, uh, Ubo has come in, they've they've been in excellent form. So I think it's going to be foolish if they don't. Um, now up to four goals, albeit his first penalty attempt and penalty goal this weekend. All of his attempts were an open play. But as I researched uh, before the game, obviously one soccer held the game. So I did some research uh, leading up to it. And Ek Ubo's numbers surprised me. Like I was going through the XG. I I, I I filtered it since his arrival and he was something like top 20 players in France in terms of XG per 90. And considering some of the players in the league, obviously on paper that put him in the, you know, one of the best per team. But then you remember that some teams like PSG have Neymar's, Messi's, Mbappe's. All of a sudden you realize like, okay, maybe Iko Ubo has quietly been one of the better strikers in Ligue 1 since his arrival. So yeah, I think it'd be foolish for them. He's got the underlying metrics. He's finishing his chances. Uh, there's some other stats that surprise you, like his XG chain and XG buildup are surprisingly underrated. Like you think, look at him and see number nine out and out. No, he gets involved in the buildup. He gets involved, you know, dropping deep and, and making things happen. So I think for what he brings as an overall package for Mill sounds like a no brainer. He's still only 23, which is, a, you know, very, very young for someone who is basically only making his uh, second or third full season in, in, in a top division league and first season in a top five flight. I think everything's set up for for Ugbo to 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 have that that option triggered because if not, I'm sure some other team in a top five league will will swoop in after what they've seen from him. For sure, and the fact that he went to Trois 
Some people were a little hesitant about it because they look at where they are in the table. They see that they're not the most offensively prolific side. But I think, as I said, when the move was finalized, that you looked at Trois' underlying numbers, they were doing quite well in terms of their attack. They were lower mid-table, maybe even pushing towards proper mid-table in Liga before Ugbo arrived. They just did not have a clinical finisher. And that's what Ugbo is to a T as we have seen since he's gotten there. And even before that with Cirque Le Bruges, with Genk, and now obviously at Troyes, 0.44 non-penalty expected goals per 90 minutes on about 1.78 shots per 90 from what my memory serves. And he's got under three touches per 90 in the penalty area. It just goes to show you how amazing he is at getting into the proper scoring positions and then putting himself in the right place to score Case in point, 0.25 XG per shot. Ridiculous. That is a very, very elite number nine numbers. Having researched a lot of uh, different strikers, that is top gravy, I'd say. Yes. And in terms of the stats bomb database, that would put you in like the upper percentile. That would put you in the 99th percentile in stats bombs database among all strikers. So kind of goes to show you just how good he is at getting onto the other end of those chances. And as you said, he's improved in terms of his build-up, in terms of getting involved in other aspects of the game. Does it always result in, say, a quality chance being created? No, but that is important too if you want to get involved because he's showing that he can be at times more of a poacher, which lends credence to the theory that he can stay at Troyes. And considering they are backed by City Football Group, they're going to have the 4 million euros to spend on him. I understand they weren't a big spender coming up from Ligue 2, but now that they're guaranteed another year, plus the fact that they have some pretty strong financial backing, to say the least, you imagine he's going to end up being purchased, especially because Genk don't seem to be too hot on him anymore. <laughs> Over to Belgium. Uh, Tejon Buchanan's Club Bruges are now three points adrift of Union saint gilois in the title race. After a nil-nil draw with Anderlecht on Sunday, Buchanan lasted 84 minutes in that one. Over to Portugal, Stephen Estacchio checked into Porto's 4-2 win over Vizela in the 89th minute. Porto just needs a point to secure the Primera Liga title there. At the bottom of the table, Stephen Vitoria's Morarense now seem destined for the relegation playoff after losing 2-1 to Boa Vista on Sunday. Vittoria was an unused substitute there. In Turkey, Kyle Lahren and Atipa Hutchinson started for Besiktas together for the first time in ages in their 3-2 win over Kayseri Spore, with Hutchinson playing a particularly key role with a couple of assists and could have also set up another if it wasn't for some pretty wasteful finishing. Um, considering Valerian Ismail has the final say on Hutchinson's new deal, that performance had to help Hutchinson's case, no? It's everything we talked about last week uh, on the show when we were looking at a go, we were looking at a situation since his smile came in. We did, you know, kind of note that hey, he he is one of the well more well known place uh, players at the club. He's kind of in a position where if Atiba Hutchinson says he's staying, Besiktas would be very foolish to to deny him of that opportunity. So I think it's only a bonus that 
Ishmael entrusted him with the start. He goes out and puts in the sort of shift that he did, you know, one assist officially. I think it was pretty much two assists in terms of the the, the other one. I don't, I'm not sure if it was officially created uh, with the assist, but he also just, you know, did did the usual business in the middle of the park, you know, Atiba Hutchinson, octopus, long-legged, just covering all sorts of ground, looking like himself again. And I think that's huge, especially look at Ishmael trying out a back three in that, that game, at least, uh, you know, in terms of on paper. So, if, if, if he finds that Hutchinson can fit in that system, which it's going to be a tall ask of him playing in, in a double pivot, but he's done it for Canada and this could help him for Canada if he's playing in, in a similar role. Uh, so the fact that Ishmael tried him out in this role and he's so far past the first test with, with flying colors, there's, there's a lot to be encouraged about uh, with there. And I think this, this shows that I'm sure they're inching towards that, that, that one year deal that I'm uh, that I assume we'll, we'll see through 2023 for world cup purposes, just to stick around with Besiktas, et cetera. Exactly. And I agree with you. The, the one caveat I'd have is, which is a feeling I've had for probably the past year with Hutchinson. Don't get me wrong. As an orchestrator, as a distributor, when he's on the ball, the man is very quick. He thinks quickly. He sees the pitch before something even develops. And he makes the right decision 99 times out of 100. The only deficiency he has, which I think every single player when they get to, if they're lucky, Hutchinson's age is in one-on-one duels when he maybe miscontrols the ball or the ball is maybe just a little too far ahead of him, he ends up losing out in those individual duels and then the opposing team has a counterattack the other way. This happened a few times against Kayseri Spore, but the good news is in a back three, there wasn't too much space to really exploit when those mistakes happen and Hutchinson does track back. But I think that will happen from time to time at this stage of his career. But on the ball, as a distributor, still sublime. As for Laren, we saw him in a more central role, which we're kind of used to seeing with Canada. He partnered Michi Bashuai and Rashid Gazelle was behind them. It, it was one of his more solid starts in a while. He did have a couple of shots, one of which was a very good run. The first chance he had, which was kind of from the left ran to the inside, had a very tight angle to shoot at, but still did very well to get on the end of the pass and have the shot. Should have scored with a second chance. He made a brilliant run down the center, beat the offside trap, had no one around him for miles, scattered over the bar. Um, now, Besiktas ultimately won the game, so it didn't, I guess, matter in the end. But assuming Laren does leave, given how well he has played as part of a striking duo... Do you see him fitting into a club in Liga, in the English Championship, in Syria, wherever he ends up going? Because he does have some potential suitors out there across the continent. I'd like to see him in in a front two, preferably one where they're really good at getting the ball either to fullbacks or wingers and kind of whipping in low balls and and something that kind of get get in the end of. Because looking at his play with Canada, and especially that last year for Besiktas, they, they tended to play more like the, every time I watched Laren, you see get on these end of these low back post crosses, near post crosses, first time finishes. And now this year, for whatever reason, it wasn't coaching at first. Same coach was there, but they obviously had issues. They seem to be playing more on the transition. And I don't know how much that that suits someone like, like Kyle Laren. He's, he's so much better when he's involved in the buildup and dropping deep and linking up with his teammates and then making those late bursting run forwards. Uh, so in terms of, of Kyle Laren, I'm just looking any team, maybe with the strike force, maybe a team that likes to, to hold possession a bit and then and then get the, the ball out into wide areas. 
Uh, so I'm not sure where that sort of team lies, but I think he is technically proficient enough to, to play in like a, a Germany or, or even a Spain as, as, you know, something like that. But uh, he is one nice thing is, is he's come through MLS. He's come through the university circuit. He's a big body. He's, he plays in CONCACAF. He could play in like an English premier league. Uh, you know, maybe you look at some of the options, you know, throwing it back. Remember when he was linked to West Ham, could he pair with the Michael Antonio leading the line? I think that's not that unreasonable to, to imagine. And there's a lot of other, you know, clubs like that. Hey, if Everton stays up and they want to, you know, invest in some strikers, could he pair with like a Calvert-Lewin or, you know, Richarlison? Maybe, possibly. I mean, maybe not Richarlison. I think more Calvert-Lewin would, would be a, a suitable partnership, but I'm sure there's a lot of options of, of teams who have a very good number nines. Heck, another wild one is if, the way Jamie Vardy is playing. I'd love to see the way he stretches the field. Kyle Aaron playing, a, you know, kind of in the, the gaps underneath. That's also, you know, just some, some teams in England. There's, there's many more in Germany. Those are just kind of the, the ones I kind of thought off the top of my head. I've said many times on the show, I don't know if he would be able to fully settle into the Premier League. I don't think he has the consistent touch, the consistent technique, and at times, the physical ability to deal with defenders one-on-one. As part of a duo, he may not have to deal with that too much, and he's gotten better in the air and more aggressive in the air, which has helped him a lot, I think, because that could have been a weapon of his from the moment he stepped foot in MLS in the pro game but never really used it until this past year and a half. That's my one doubt. That's why I do like France. That's why even in the English championship where he can kind of get his feet wet, kind of fine tune some of those things. Cause yes, he is entering his prime years here, but it's never too late to learn these things. So that's personally how I feel. Sticking with Turkey after a quieter game last week, Sam Atakubi was a live wire and Hachi Spores one nil loss to Altai Spore Kulubu. Adekubi had two clearances, one block, one interception, one tackle, three key passes, and completed 89% of his passes in that one. In other words, a classic Sam Adekubi performance. In the championship, where Richie Lorea had not one, Alex, but two appearances off the bench over the last week. Shocker. In the 1-0 win over champions Fulham, in about 18 minutes of action in midweek, the second stint was in the 5-1 win over Swansea over the weekend, where Larea had, give or take, 10 or 12 minutes. Despite playing maybe about a smidgen over a half an hour, Alex, like he's he's drawn some rave reviews from fans, from local media as well. And, and rightly so. He's had some pretty decent cameos. How can you not like the guy? That's the thing. You watch the way he plays. I mean, first of all, for, for Forrest and the few times I've seen him come on, it's been in various situations, usually, you know, high scoring games where they've already kind of sealed it up. But one thing I've noticed, he loves to take guys on. He's always had that. And I think fans, that's been something I've noticed been highlighted. Like they love his ability just to run and stretch the touchline and go on these mazy windy runs through defenders and, and set up chances. But then he, he just kind of player that fights for the badge. You, you know, it's very, you know, stereotypical. It's very English, but I can see why they'd, they'd love that. He's, he's, he's fiery. He's, he stands up for his teammates. He's passionate. And that's the sort of thing that, 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 that fans in England love. So for, for me, it's not surprising at all that he'd be a fan favorite. He, he has a lot of the, the attributes and, and the way he's, you know, he's got the skills as well. It was just a matter of opportunity. And now that he's getting it, I think we're seeing the fans warming him. We're seeing more importantly, the manager, Steve Cooper, obviously warmed to him. And with some of the big games that they might have ahead, including this one, uh, you know, as of recording the next day, like the, this Bournemouth versus 
uh, Nottingham Forest clash. If you if you're not gonna plan to watch it, or if you're not gonna you know rewatch it, it's gonna be on DAZN. So if you, you for whatever reason you missed it, three points between the two, pretty much the winner is gonna be all but guaranteed to go up to the Premier League. It's gonna be a wild game, and uh, hopefully Richkey can can feature in that because I think as he's shown in big games, he, he's gonna step up and, and he's gonna wanna you know be be ready and be a, be a participant. That's it. And he really should have a couple of assists by now, if not for some woeful finishing. Yep. Like that Fulham game, that run he went on, given the situation of that game where Forrest was still leading 1-0, um, for him to go on that crazy, crazy run and to set up the chance that he set up, it's a shame it did not end in a goal. And ditto for what happened over the weekend against Swansea. He had two chances he could have set up and ultimately his uh, teammates just could not finish. But he certainly... I guess, appealing to the Forest faithful there in what has been some very brief cameos, but a flash of what he could possibly provide. We do have some questions about Lorea in the mailbag, so we'll discuss more on him later. Um, elsewhere in the division, Junior Hoylett went the full 90 again for Reading, who lost 1-0 to West Brom on Saturday. But Hoylett was solid as he's been for the past few months, and not just solid, but staying fit and finishing full 90s, which you can't often say about him. Um, in this game, four key passes, two of five dribbles completed, just fearlessly and constantly taking on defenders, really as he has been for the last four months now, I guess you could say. Um, Daniel Jebison was back in the Sheffield United squad, but was an unused substitute in the 3-1 win against QPR. He had scored for the under-23s in midweek, which I guess led to his recall to the first team after a brief spell out of the squad. Uh, in League One, Theo Corbinu was an unused substitute in MK Dons' finale against Plymouth, winning 5-0 to officially finish third. They'll face Wickham Wanderers in the first leg of their playoff semifinal this Thursday. The second leg will be at home on Sunday, in case you want to tune into those. Bad news for Liam Miller. He broke his arm, his forearm to be specific, in Basel's 2-0 loss to Zurich on Sunday and will require surgery. Now, we don't have an exact timeline on this. Apparently, it could be anywhere from six weeks to as many as three or four months. But um, considering the June window could have been the perfect opportunity for Miller to get some regular playing time with the first 11 or most of the first 11, Alex... This has to be just a detrimental blow to just the chances that he would have had to kind of reassert himself and prove that this form can be translated to the national team. I think it's a huge blow for him. I don't think it's a much better opportunity in terms of World Cup auditions. I think this camp's going to be massive because in September it's going to be mostly tactics preparation maybe if some guys had some wild heaters over the summer that 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 are worth keeping an eye on but this this window is really going to be a good one for for auditioning i feel like for for for, for roles and i think that that's not going to hurt his, his standing in john herdman's eyes i think john herdman knows what he has in liam miller he's called him up he's been one of the most constant call-ups under herdman not just this year but dating back to 2018 so so obviously Herdman knows what he has in him, but I think this would be a great audition for potential starting uh, minutes. So 
who knows, maybe he'll be able to participate in some form. Maybe he comes to training and is able to do like some non-contact. Maybe he'll be cleared. The thing is with arms and wrists and, and, and soccer, those injuries really depend on, you know, what the injury is, how the recovery is, et cetera. Some players will be back within weeks. Some players will take longer, uh, you know, so for who knows for, for how Leo Miller's timeline, because what we don't know is, or at least uh, unless I'm mistaken, we don't know like which part of his arm is fractured, et cetera. Cause it, you know, it depends on where the, where on the arm it, it's fractured, but I think ultimately no matter what, it's still a big blow for, for, for Miller. And it's unfortunate given the form uh, he's in for, for Basel, even though their season's pretty much done and hopefully everything goes well with this recovery. You hope so because the one issue he has had when he's been given opportunities with the national team. First of all, they've been sporadic. But second, it's come either in the middle of a three-game window or at the end of a three-game window when everybody's tired. There's been heavy rotation. I think apart from one of the games he appeared in during the Ocho. And Costa Rica when he started. That one was that uh, one, the one exception. That one that was the one exception. And he didn't really take that opportunity. But before that, like against Jamaica, could have won the game, played pretty well. Um, and even against Costa Rica, he had his moments, but it, it reminded you of like previous Liam Miller, pre-Basel Liam Miller, where like he showed the flashes and like, oh, okay, like he's showing some sort of promise and then just couldn't grasp it consistently. The difference is this season with those regular minutes, he has been able to translate that into consistent form in the form of what? Seven goals, two assists in the league. Uh, nine goals and four assists combined across all competitions, which is very good for a winger. And what is really his first fully fledged season in a top flight league when he hasn't been on loan from Liverpool and kind of wondering, hey, what's my club future going to look like in a few months time? In the second Bundesliga, it was a good day for Scott Kennedy. Okay day for Jan Regensburg overall, who drew 1-1 with Dinamo Dresden. They are guaranteed to stay up for another year in the second division, though, so that is positive news there. In Greece, what a day for Derek Cornelius. Scored and helped Panatolikos keep a clean sheet in a 1-0 win over Crete. We'll probably hear Cornelius' name during the mailbag, so stay tuned. AGR can wax poetic about his boy, one of the most, uh, I think, misunderstood players in the player pool over the last couple of years. Um, Milan Borjan and Red Star Belgrade moved one step closer to the Serbian Superliga title after a 3-0 victory against Vojvodina. They take on Stefan Mitrovic's Radnički Niš this Saturday. That could be a decent one to watch if you have access. Speaking of whom, Mitrovic had the full 90 in Monday's 0-0 draw with Chukarički. Richie Ennen went 89 minutes as Nizhny Novgorod drew 2-2 with Arsenal Tula. Ennen had two shots on target, probably could have scored one of them if I'm being honest. Uh, but he is showing continued growing confidence in front of goal over the past few weeks, really since he scored his first goal for the club, which is crazy what that can do for a player. In the Scottish Premiership, Scott Arfield and Rangers drew 1-1 with Celtic in the old firm. Arfield had 87 minutes while he earned a 10-minute spell off the bench in last Thursday's 1-0 loss to Leipzig in the Europa League semifinals. The second leg is this Thursday at Ibrox, which should be a lot of fun and quite the atmosphere. Harry Payton and Ross County, they keep flying high. They drew 0-0 with Hearts and moved up to fifth and are on the brink of securing a European place, which would be insane 
given the size of the club and the size of their budget. What a job Malky Mackay has done there. Peyton came into the game just before second half stoppage time in that one. Uh, Theo Bear had his first appearance in a couple of weeks. He went just over 15 minutes or so for St. Johnston in a 1-0 loss to St. Murrin. They're likely heading for the relegation playoff at season's end, so we'll see what happens with Bear and Watherspoon's side. In MLS, it was a battle between Canada's number two and number three, at least currently. In which order? In which order? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> currently, we can maybe debate that even. With Maxine Cripo and LAFC shutting out Dane St. Clair's Minnesota United 2-0. But you could argue, Alex, it was St. Clair who came away from this with the better performance, as you would probably expect given both teams' situations, the way they play, etc., etc. But still... St. Clair was once again outstanding. He continues to be. It's just impressive. I think he's showing a really good maturity in his game so far this year. And the fact that, again, uh, you know, Adrian Heath continues to ride with him over Tyler Miller uh, is encouraging. He continues to make big saves overall in the game as well. It was nil-nil to about the 80th minute. And then LAFC broke through at home, as you'd expect them to do. They've been dominant this year. They're the early supporter shield favorites for, for a reason. So the fact that St. Clair, Minnesota went in had it, you know, held on for, for 80 minutes, maybe the Rue not grabbing a goal earlier on, but uh, this LAFC team is a tough beast. Like the way they play right now, it's, it's, it's fun to watch. They play a high line with Crepo sweeping so high. They, you know, offensively they're fluid. They've got a bit of the swagger back in the midfield that they lost when they got rid of Mark Anthony K. They're a formidable unit. So the fact that Minnesota United went there and just St. Clair, again, he continues to be very consistent. That's what I'm liking from his game. Every game he's going out, he's making big stops night in, night out. His distribution slowly, you know, continuing to get better. There's a lot to like with this game. And he's certainly making the discussion for number two versus number three, a fun one. And, and one that I thought it was, a, it's a lot closer now than I ever thought it'd be this year, which, which is fun. I think obviously it's going to probably be Crepos, but we do have to remember once Borean's gone, it's going to all of a sudden turn into one versus two. And, exactly. and that's going to be even more fun to, to watch for. Exactly. Exactly. And by the way, this could be another conversation we steer back to when we get to a specific question in the mailbag, a little bit of a teaser along with the Cornelius thing. Um, St. Clair, when I watch him make saves, the one thing that really impresses me when he is shot stopping specifically, it's not so much the agility that he has getting across the frame of the goal, no matter how fast or fierce the shot is. It's the awareness to control the rebounds, know where to parry it, um, taking a little bit of sting off the ball, maybe if he wants to parry it out to one of his defenders to eventually clear it. That takes a lot of skill to do, and that cannot be understated enough. Um, Distribution-wise, yes, he may not give you a lot, but with his command of the penalty area with the way that he is now confidently claiming crosses plus that shot stopping ability you got a pretty damn good goalkeeper to be honest and crepo to his credit i feel like over the last few games you can even maybe say dating back to the season opener we have kind of pointed out i think you and i alex that crosses were a bit of a weakness of his in vancouver not so much the case this year. I think he's improved a little bit in that regard, which is good because everything else was pretty much perfect. Yet it's ironic because now the last couple of games, he's had a couple of questionable passes out from the back that have either led to turnovers and goals or nearly did. So I feel like with Crepo, he kind of has to like 
keep himself a little humble at times. But I mean, both goalkeepers are going to make this a very interesting battle. Well, it's a tough situation for Crepa. That's one thing I've noticed when watching LAFC games. It's not fun to be a goalkeeper for them in terms of shot stopping and whatnot. Like he almost has to push up, you know, very high up the field to stay involved and to get his touches in. So sometimes I don't blame him if, you know, the concentration is there or isn't always there because you look at Vancouver. Yeah, he was busy. He was getting, you know, he's setting records some nights, even where you're getting shots, you're, you're getting your, your touches, you're getting your saves in. Whereas with LAFC, Sometimes they only ask you to make a save. They're playing such a high line, it gets broken. And then you have to make that big save. And the good news is Crepo, for the most part, has been making that save. Uh, yeah, there has been some surprising errors at the back. But for the most part, he keeps it very clean. I think his passing is one, you know, in one of the top percentiles in MLS among goalkeepers for a reason. And he continues to be very solid there. And it's ultimately just different responsibilities with, with St. Clair, with Crepo, with Borean. And I think that's going to be nice for, for Canada long term to look at these guys and see that they have different stylistical goals too it's not just a matter of plugging in guys you can really mold the system around Crepo, mold the system around st Clair, and you know even other guys like you know hassal and brezza they're certainly just you know discovering their own you know capabilities and their own styles as well i think that's pretty cool and unique as a and sirwa as well as another one who's developing yeah. his own unique style over in valor and i think that's that's pretty cool from a canadian perspective it is and to be honest i find whether it's in soccer or in hockey the goalies who are not that active throughout the course of a game, I feel get more of my respect because you got to be so locked in mentally to make those big mm -hmm. saves when your team needs you the most. And when you're cold and you're not in your groove, you got to snap out of it right away. And that's what the best goalkeepers do. And so Crepeau going to end up learning this because it's one thing to face 20, 30, sometimes 40 shots in a game in, in vancouver to then go from that to facing maybe five six shots and that's not even on target i'm just talking total attempts at goal um per game that's quite the difference but it's something he will have to adjust to this season and he has to to be fair so far so remember what i said about mark anthony k last week he told us all specifically me i guess to shove it and scored for the colorado rapids in their 2-0 win against Portland, my God, he was sensational in this game. Like, he was everywhere. Kind of a, a classic Mark Anthony K performance in a lot of ways. To close it out, Raheem Edwards was, for a time, back among the assists, but had the goal chalked off as the LA Galaxy lost 1-0 to Real Salt Lake. But it was still a good game from the left back, all things considered. A pretty solid two-way performance yet again. So from the roundup to the Canucks Abroad mailbag, we go. We'll start with a couple of questions along the same theme. The first one's from Nate Old, who asked, Mexico and the U.S. have announced their full slate of friendlies and Nations League games in June. Why is Canada so far behind with only a month to go? And Aruyan asked, did the friendly get finalized or when should we expect an announcement regarding that? And are we going to host the friendlies? Also, are we hosting some friendlies in September or are we going to Europe as Herdman alluded to? So to start off this very loaded start to the mailbag, Alex, I mean, you kind of dropped the AGR bomb last week regarding the friendly. To those who maybe missed it, what is the potential situation or the likely situation, I guess? For sure. I mean, I think Canada, obviously, they have to host a game in June with the Nations League commitment. Uh, they, they host Curacao. Uh, in one of those games 
it sounds like they're looking at a friendly. I would have thought it was two, but as you know, you mentioned with Nick Bontis, as it, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like one friendly. The plan again is to 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 have it in Vancouver. I think it's pretty much all but written in pen. I think that, that we see that a lot with Canada. We've seen that in the past during the World Cup. A lot of these things get sorted out. It's just you know, admin Canada really likes to for whatever reason, always takes time with these sorts of announcements. So yes, uh, I think both games should be in Vancouver. Again, friendly, a pretty high profile nation. I'm hearing supposed to be announced this week. Will that happen? Who knows? But, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting. Uh, At first, I will throw, I guess, two teasers, because why not? Northern football will have fun. At first, I heard some strong South American countries thrown in there. So have fun with that. And also some other ones I've heard is African strong African nations. So it doesn't sound like there'll be a European team, but African, South American, there's not, there's oh so many big nations within those, uh, those parameters. So that's what I've been hearing in terms of that. I think they just got to finalize that announce that Canada's always typically a bit slow. So I'm not surprised. It is annoying because, you know, people want to plan. I'd love to, like, obviously I'll be in Vancouver for these games, so I'm not too worried, but I can imagine there's a lot who'd want to travel for some of the, you know, a, a level of this friendly, uh, that, that that will be played as well as this Curacao game. Don't sleep on how fun and important that Curacao home game uh, will be, but they're obviously working it through the details. And maybe that'll be part of one, one of the things that when the, the World Cup money comes in, we'll start to see more uh, prompt and quicker and announcements from, from Canada. But right now it's uh, the usual. But the nice thing is it is still early-ish. I mean, it is, the camp is in like four weeks. So it is, you know, but at the same time, if they announce it this week, I think that should give sufficient time, hopefully, for for people to to plan for this, and it should be fun. From what I'm what I'm hearing, just waiting, obviously, for for official word. Yeah. It was always going to be South America or Africa, just because the UEFA nations are playing Nations League. There was no chance there was going to be a team coming over here or them playing friendlies at all. So, you couple with the fact that South Africa or South African South American teams are coming to the U.S. specifically, it just works out perfectly. Same with some African national teams as well. So we'll see what happens. Um, We know that Nick Bontis came on the show and said that they were in contact with some pretty high-profile nations for both this upcoming window as well as in September, which, you know, might lead to them maybe potentially changing their plans if the right team came calling and or accepted an invite. Um, Which leads to the next question. Um, In terms of September, John Herbman after the World Cup draw did say that they are heading for Europe in the fall from the looks of things. A lot can change, but considering most of Canada's players play in Europe, it's going to be a month or so into the European season. Unless like a Brazil or an Argentina said, hey, we want to play you in Toronto or Montreal or wherever the case is, I don't really see that changing. Do you? No, I think Europe's been their goal. I think it would have to be something like it would have to be an offer too good to be refused. I can't I don't think you can rule it out. Like, yeah, like you mentioned, if for some reason you're you're able to to swing a Brazil and, you know, in Toronto, like you would be foolish to say no to that. Uh, but um, I think in terms of their plans, Europe makes a lot of sense for, for a lot of reasons. I think a lot of the European teams will want to host teams there. It makes sense for, for a team like Canada to go out there, test a new environment, get your, get, it'll be easier to, tr- to travel, to bring in players. Uh, they've been in North. We have to remember like 
boy, looking at the last few years, like because of all their Nations League and World Cup qualifier commitments, when's the last time they left North America? Off the top of my head, I'm thinking like 2018 when they went to 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 Spain at the beginning of the year to play New Zealand. Because other than that, through 2018 and 2019, it was Nations League, and then it was Gold Cup, and then it was Nations League. It was World Cup again. I think it'll be good for them on on so many fronts. So while it sucks, obviously, not be able to host a big marquee friendly, one one nice thing about making the World Cup as they have, I'm sure these doors will start to open more in 2023, 2024, where these teams will be more interested in playing Canucks. I just think now the opportunity to go play like a, I don't know, just a big, you know, mid-tier to top-tier European nation will be there in September. And I think Canada really wants to capitalize on that just to get that different type of team, different type of style. The other benefit to setting up shop in Europe is much like Canada, a lot of the players from some African nations, some Asian nations do play in Europe. So if those teams want to set up some friendlies against Canada in Europe at a neutral ground, they can do that as well. So it's two birds with one stone situation. The one last point I'll make regarding the timing of the announcement and and the delays it's taking, for sure, it probably should be a little quicker. I'm sure travel logistics and all that are difficult to work out when you got so many players from different parts of the globe coming in. But it's exacerbated by how understaffed the CSA is. And I know we've said this so many times, but it is true. Like, look at the size of the U.S. Federation and the Mexican Federation and the amount of employees, full-time employees, I might add, that each federation has. A lot of these things are very easy to do because they have the resources to do it. Canada simply does not right now. You hope, as you pointed out, Alex, that once the World Cup money starts rolling in, you can start to build up the amount of employees you have and just overall the amount of resources you have. These things become less and less of an issue over the next couple of years. But right now, that's the reality. Um, That being said, Canada also doesn't do a great job marketing their games a lot of the time. Sure, you could maybe pin that to lack of staff, but there's some ways that they kind of shoot themselves in the foot sometimes. But I digress. Um, so a couple of questions here, which uh, kind of tie back to the whole Crepeau and St. Clair and Cornelius discussions we had earlier. We got a question here from Mike Lafave, who asked, I would expect Ugbo to have a very large role in Nations League. Who are two to three other players you think we will see in that expanded role? So hence the Cornelius and or St. Clair teases here so who do you see as maybe two or three other candidates to get an extended run in the team next month so if we're talking extended runs in the team um i mean maybe i've teased one already i think mark anthony k it's hard to say expanded because he's already been such a big uh, you know part of this team but i think after that how, how things ended in the uh, you know the octo i think he is one um i think Derek cornelius is also a very good shout i think this would be a good moment to to, to you know really give give him a, a shot maybe you know maybe St. Clair and goal I, I agree with both of those uh you know choices otherwise looking at you know the the, the depth chart it's I, I might refer to you here and see if anyone pops up but I'm just looking a lot of the guys their roles I'm not looking and, and seeing Liam Miller was the one who really was a lot of guys are kind of their roles are defined. Like yeah. someone like Junior Hoyle, I'd love to see him play more, but his role is pretty clearly defined uh, in terms too. of he's that. So 
Yeah, it's like he's a super sub tweener starter. A lot of guys kind of fit that role. So for me, it would be guys who are not in the picture, if anything. It would be like, okay, what do you have with a guy like Christian Gutierrez, for example? What do you have in a, you know, a guy like that? Or some, you know, some, what do you have in a Caden Chung? What do you have in a Lucas McNaughton? It's kind of guys more on the fridge. One name that came immediately to mind who we discussed last week, Stefan Mitrovic for me. Um, mm-hmm. Because as I mentioned the improvisation he has, the fearlessness on the dribble that he has, the way he opens up space with that technique of his, not to mention the eye for goal he has now developed this season and what's been a breakout year for him. He could be a real weapon for the national team. And he can play on the left wing. He can play as a number 10 slash second striker, however you want to use him. He's played in both of those roles at club level. And he's a dual national. So there are so many benefits to, to bringing him in. And I feel like I've been saying this now for six months. This nation's league is the perfect opportunity to bring in a couple of dual nationals who would be prospective players for you, who you can, who you can kind of fast track into the team. And Mitrovic would be one of the first names that would come to mind for me. Yeah. I think Stefan Mitrovic is, is obviously a big show. And I think right now amongst dual nationals, based on how the season is going to end, he's right now the number one. Cause again, like we mentioned until Lucas Diaz and Justin Smith and Daniel Jebison until they're breaking through and playing regularly for their clubs. That's the one edge that, that Mitrovic has over all of them. And, and as long as he continues to, to hold that, I think that'll be, uh, you know, that'll be good. One other thing worth noting, I'll throw it out there. Do we see any CPL players maybe included? Cause there are some guys playing in very good, uh, you know, form. It might be a bit hard for, for John Herdman to include them, but you know, just, you know, spitballing, for example, you look at right wing back depth, could someone like Kunle Dadaluk sneak in at, at right wing back with how he's been playing over at Pacific, just throwing some wild names out there. Marco Bustos as well with the form he's in. Could you maybe consider just bring him in and he gets a shot to kind of prove? Cause I think, mean, you know, it's, it's obviously going to be tough with some of the names they're up against, but I'm just throwing those kinds of names out there because based on how they're playing, it feels like a lot of these guys are going to be on a mass exodus to bigger leagues this next year. It really feels like the CPL might be on the cusp of, you know, some of these guys getting big moves. If Can ends up moving on, up on them early, it could be interesting to see, uh, like, say Marco Bustos makes a move to MLS finally next year. You know, if he's already integrated in the Canadian fold, that could be, uh, you know, good long-term. So I'm just throwing those those names out as something maybe put really wild cards if we're looking at guys that we aren't, you know, talking about. Because I was updating my depth chart, uh, just my own personal depth chart. I have a name of a list of like 60, 70 guys that I have written on. And I was trying to look at some CPL guys and I was like, you know what? There are some fun names. Like I'm looking like, for example, like Max Ferrari in the wing back chart. He could like, he could make some moves if he gets a regular run of, of, of games and, you know, right wing back, you got your Diadine Abzies, you got all these guys. Now it'd be fun to, to maybe see one of them get a, get a shot and see what he could do with it. Similar theme because Ugbo was mentioned in Mike's question, but Jordan SC asked with Ugbo, the most informed striker for Canada at the moment, will he finally get his first start next month or be once again used as an 80th minute substitute? What do you think happens with Ugbo? He a thousand percent deserves to start one game. If he doesn't start a game, like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Because right now he's, you look at just facts like right now he's Canada's most informed striker. I agree wholeheartedly uh, with that. I already, he's Canada's best pure number nine. I I'd already put that out there. Statistically he's done everything to earn a, a, you know, a spot. Now he's in a top five league. 
uh, you know, like arguably you're looking right now, like is he Canada's best forward? That's not a, absurd to, to talk about. Obviously, Jonathan David's form and, you know, is he is Jonathan David even a striker? I think my EK has to start. I think if low key, this might be some bold proclamations for me to throw out there. He might be Canada's X factor at this World Cup. He, he could be that guy that, you know, we, we know what yes, we have in, in, in Ustakio. You, you know what you have in Atiba Hutchinson, uh, you know, Jonathan David, Alfonso Davies. You know what the regulars are. I think Ike Ubo could be that X factor, no matter what role it is. Maybe he starts games. Maybe, you know, he comes off the bench. Just again, 23, what he's doing in Ligue 1, after the path he's gone through his pedigree. Uh, the fact that Canada, like, you know, right now, obviously when Canada secured his his commitment, it was it was good news. I'd say it was obviously, it was always big to, to get a commitment like that. But it was kind of like, okay, he's playing a gank sort of at the time. Yeah. You know, he's a bit older. You aren't maybe, you know not saying that you aren't excited, but this isn't like say a Fakayo Tomori where like you're going out on the streets, you were getting a, a double decker bus, you were yeah. celebrating. Like, it was one where it's like, okay, you're happy. Or is EK Ugbo. Now he's starting to feel like that for me. Like all of a sudden he's putting this, we're starting to realize like, okay, maybe we don't realize this, the quality of player that Canada has picked up here. So for all those reasons, I think a hundred times, yes, EK Ugbo should play. John Herman would be foolish not to see how he looks in the system, because I think he can offer you so many looks, just the Jonathan David playing off of him, Kyle Aaron playing off of him, him holding up the number nine, him getting on the end of Alfonso Davies cutbacks and, and Richie Larey and Tejan Buchanan cutbacks. Like, Ikeogbo needs his chance. And I will continue to state that I stated that the last few windows. And as long as he continues to get better and better like this, like my opinion of him, it's only going to grow higher. If he doesn't play next month, I I think for the first time we can finally say that John Herman's gotten something seriously, seriously wrong for the first time in a long time. I'll I'll just leave it at that. Um, Another question here from Mike Lefebvre. Pretty fun question here. Over under 1.5 Canadians playing in the Premier League next season. He says that Richie Larea and possibly Jonathan David going to the Premier League is his thinking. So over or under one and a half Canadians in the Premier League next season. To be nuanced and annoying, define playing. Over, because, you know, we, we forget Theo Corbinell. He's already there and, and he's contracted to Wolves. So... Uh, yes, he, we can talk. Well, we will talk about what's going on with with Theo Corbinau at MK Dons, but I think there's still a lot of optimism there. Young, long term, he's just 19, uh, has already made his Premier League debut. I think between uh, Sheffield United uh, with Daniel Jebison and uh, Richie Larea in four, you know, I'm sorry, and Forrest, uh, there's there's a strong shout. One of them gets promoted. Very strong shout, I'd say, possibly even two with if if Larea's able to sneak past Bournemouth in that big game I alluded to earlier. Mm-hmm. I think between Jonathan David and Kyle Laren, heck, even if EK Ubo's purchase option doesn't get picked up, I think there's also another possibility there. And to throw out another wild card, Junior Hoyt is a free agent. He's been absolutely fantastic in the championship. Just saying, you know, a team coming up, say like, it's, it's, it's you know, it's bold. Yes, Hoyt hasn't played in the Premier League in what, three years? But hey, for, for a team coming up that's maybe a bit younger and needs a bit of experience, with Hoylet being a free agent, that wouldn't be the worst idea in the world giving him a contract to play. Because when he's been healthy, he's been on a bad Reading team and he's like put up some borderline dominant displays. So long-winded answer, I'd smash the over on that one. Like to think that we could see a, a, a finally an uptick in Canadians at the, the English Premier League. I would love if Jonathan David went to Inter. I think tactically that is the best fit for him. They're competing for titles. Mm -hmm. They are playing in the Champions League. It's everything you want. The problem is 
financially, the Premier League teams are going to blow them out of the water, both for the fee as well as the wages. Because right now, Inter, from what I have read, they have a 420 million euro bond that they are now trying to get essentially refinanced over the next five years, which it looks like they're going to do. But then they have to build up some revenue for their transfers this summer, which could involve selling Lautaro Martinez, who I think would have to leave anyways in order for David to come in there. But then you got to free up even more players because you've got Arturo Vidal and Alexis Sanchez, Thomas's boys, who are hogging up about 20 million euros in annual gross revenues, which is very gross, by the way. So Mal asked this question about Larea as we transition nicely here. If Nottingham Forest make the Premier League, and it seems they have a decent chance at an automatic berth right now, does this impact those who were set to leave? Ultimately asking if we see the promotion as good for Larea's playing time, or if it would be detrimental. So Jed Spence, who is the starting right wing back, is contracted to Middlesbrough who could end up getting into the promotion playoff and promoted themselves. He has been linked, Jed Spence, to four or five clubs over the last couple of months. Apparently teams like Man City, Arsenal, Tottenham have made offers. I think United's inquired, which is apparently his preferred move. Bayern's kept contact, but he's available for anywhere from about 11 million to 13 million pounds, which is a bargain. Uh, Middlesbrough ultimately have the leverage in this situation, but if Forrest go up, they would have the financial means to keep him, but he would also have to want to stay. I don't think it changes too much in terms of what could happen to the outgoing players, at least in Spence's case. But it might change things slightly financially once that guarantee is secured, if it's secured. Yeah, I think that's the one thing about the Premier League promotion that'll be worth noting is that with the, the the Premier League deal, it's going to be a you know fat influx of cash, for lack of a better way to put it. That's the one thing with the championship. It's so lucrative to get promoted these days because you get uh, the, the huge splash of cash. So I guess ultimately it would depend what happens with Spence. I think either way, Forrester due to, 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 to reinforce their wingback position. That's partly why they brought in Larea and especially if Spence, I think they, they had another one in on loan uh, was, was Max Lowe not in on, on loan of, of some sort. So they'll, they'll have to bring in replacements for that. The questions will just be how is, is Richie Larea viewed internally? Because mm -hmm. them as a club, do you bring in a $15 million replacement for Spence? Or do you think that Larea will offer you, you know, 80%, 70% maybe of what Spence offers. I'm just being conservative because, again, Spence is a very special player. You're not saying you don't want to ask someone like Larray to be like, it's your first season in the Premier League. Somehow your team got there. Like you have to replace a, you know, borderline, not generational, that word's maybe used a bit much, but a very, 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 a very, very good player. We'll, we'll assume you want to ask, you look 70%. I feel like that's a fair, maybe 60%. Do you want, do you think Larea can be 60 to 70% of that and you back spending your money on strengthening your midfield, strengthening up front, strengthening your center backs? I think that's a, a question for Steve Cooper. I think one thing is with how they play, wing backs are very essential. So I think it's going to be, you know, with the 3 5 2, it's going to be something they look at a little closer, especially with the guys outgoing. They're going to be bringing in fullbacks. So if you get some offers to bring in some very good players, why not? Uh, so I think in terms of going up to the Premier League, my, my, to a long and honest answer, I think it will hurt Lorraine in terms of minutes. But this could, that also doesn't mean it's a bad thing because going up into, 
to, you know, from MLS to being on a Premier League bench within a year is not a bad thing. And as we saw, if Larea is already getting the trust from his coach, just because he has a more expensive player in front of him, A, doesn't mean he can't win that spot. And B, doesn't mean that he won't get any opportunities if he's if he's ready. And I do think at least if he's sitting on the bench in the Premier League, uh, I don't know, for some whatever reason, that just sounds more enticing. That sounds more. Uh, given, you know, I, I don't mind that situation as much as sitting in the bench in the championship. You're, okay, maybe Larea needs more minutes. And partially for me, maybe that's just the, the rise of Tejon Buchanan at right wing back. So you're not like, if Larea doesn't play, you're not sitting there thinking like, okay, Canada's starting right uh, wing back is not playing. Cause I think now Larea and Buchanan, there's going to be some competition there. But I think it would, uh, the Premier League move ultimately wouldn't be a bad one for, for Larea. It certainly would not. Okay, so Mike Lefebvre once again uh, asked, do you see similar transfers coming this summer for some Canadian MLS players like Tejon Buchanan had? Sale in the summer, then loaned back for the rest of the season, or do you think the players and Herbman would push for immediate moves to Europe? Short, simple answer here, Alex. I feel like whatever they can get, they'll take it. It's going to likely be the first one, though, I think for a variety of reasons. I just can't see anyone right now that would I'm looking at a lot of the guys. I'm thinking guys like Alistair Johnston, Kamal Miller. I feel like they just go in the off season. It's not often you see like a move for a defender or something like that orchestrated. I think it's usually you see it what you saw with Alfonso Davies, you saw with Tejan Buchanan. It's a, you know, guys who you're going to pay a big fee for It's guys you want to lock down right away. Uh, whereas a guy like Johnston and Miller is, good as they are as players and how we review them. I don't think a team's going to be sitting there thinking like, we need to snap him up. Even if we have to loan him back to, to the club, I think uh, that that option will be there. I think Jaquil Marshall Rudy was going to be one of those players, but with the knee injuries, I think it might just be end of the season kind of thing. If he's, if, you know, depending on how he recovers from his injury. So honest, I'm not seeing all the players I'm seeing, I think would be end of the season based on what I'm seeing, just based more on their profiles and uh, what teams will be looking for. I would agree with that. Final question from Mike. Has Theo Corbinu's play at MK Dons slipped that much or have others just played better? I watched his first few games there and he looked really good. He's still super young, seen others panicking, but no need for that yet. I say yes and no. He is 19 years old, so he's still very, very young. This is his first real experience at this level. And he's had a couple of loan spells already because the Sheffield Wednesday move didn't work out for a variety of reasons. This one's been better. The one reason I think he has not gotten as many starts, which I think is now probably the fourth or fifth time I've mentioned this, he is the top player when it comes to dribbles per 90 and dribbles completed per 90 minutes by far in League One. The problem is when you look at things like shot ending carries or key pass ending carries or goal ending carries. Basically any shot, key pass or goal that resulted from a dribble, Theo Corbin, who's nowhere near the top 30 in the league. Whereas players like Troy Parrott and Scott Twine, who are the other wide players in that team, are in the top 15 or 20 players in those respective categories. So that's why I think they're getting more starts because they are the hot hands. MK Dons is on the verge of getting promoted to the championship. Why not ride with those players? Corbinu is younger than them. He's going to learn, but there are times when I feel like he can make a pass and just chooses to dribble into no man's land sometimes. To his credit, he's become a bigger goal threat. 
But overall, that is probably the one thing that's holding him back. All I'll say about Corbin, I'll try and keep it short. He's a raw player. I think we have to remember that he's 19. Yes. He's got phenomenal gifts. Like he's two footed, which again, at 19, the, 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 what he's able to do in terms of striking the ball, crossing the ball on both feet, he's, you know, you, you have to be excited, but I also, what we realize is, especially watching him too, he, he's raw. It's coming. Like there's some moments where he'll take on a guy and you'll be like, this is borderline premier league quality. You can see why wolves had him on the bench a lot last year why they're interested. And then there are just moments again, where he doesn't take that shot right away or he hesitates or he doesn't go for that cutback. And I think that's just the, the nature of being a 19 year old winger. So I think for him, it's just continuing to hone that part of his game because you look at his qualities or they're at a very elite level in terms of his baseline skill, his physical abilities. It's really just finding the decision-making. I think the stats you put out, Peter highlight that fact very well. And I think uh, because of that, Unfortunately, we've seen the, the on a team like MK Dons fighting for their lives on a promotion shift. If they feel like maybe if he was their property, they'd want to play him more and, and get him, you know, g- get him on the field and developing. And not saying that he isn't, but from their perspective, they're trying to get promoted. If they feel like that Corbinau isn't making the right decisions in the final third, they're under no obligation to have to play him, as unfortunate as it is. So I think with him, it's just continuing to get those minutes, continuing to grow that side of a game because. Not saying it's the only thing holding him back because it feels wrong to say that for someone so young, but that is the side of his game that's going to be how he figures that out is going to be the the difference between how good he is if, if he's going to be a career Premier League player, career championship player, career maybe even a League One player. But I doubt his ceiling will or his floor will be that low or ceiling will be that low. I think he'll he is more on the the other edge of those things, but figuring that out will determine how good he ends up being. It is coachable, so that is the good news. David Anthony, if Harry Payton and Ross County make Europe, does that hurt or help his chances of a Nations League call-up? The UEFA Europa Conference League second-round qualifiers this year were in the third week of July. And teams who started in Europe at that stage, whether it was in the Europa League or in the UECL, as they now call it, they started their preseasons in some cases early June to mid June. So I feel like Ross County is going to want to keep him around. Plus the midfield depth is quite loaded. So I feel like it would have been tough for him anyways. Maybe if Ross County doesn't make Europe, then there's a chance. But even then I, I can't really see it. Um, Edward Hansing Wong. How is Bilal Halbuni doing? He seems to have been subbed off early twice in April. He did, but then he played the full 90 over the weekend. And I think one of those two games was tactical because they were up 3-0 and they were cruising. So um, they just wanted to give him a bit of a rest in that regard. Tej Sandu, speaking of center backs, he asked, Juvi Kuner had an impressive performance against UEFA Youth League champions Benfica. Pending call-up for the Canadian men's national team. Do you think integrating these youngsters into the system in World Cup vibes might set them up for 2026. I haven't seen the Benfica game specifically, but I watched Juvi Kuner against Rio Ave. Uh, it would have been two weeks ago, I guess. As a pure defender, very, very good. He times his tackles well. He's very quick. Knows how to jockey up against some pretty speedy dribblers. Knows how to shepherd them away from goal. Very good in the air as well. Really no worries there. He's going to keep growing in that department. On the ball, he is shaky, even when he's not pressed, but especially when he is pressed. It is also his first start, I think, 
four Bragas under 23s. I wouldn't call him up until after this World Cup is happening or any player like him, but he's one to monitor, especially if he can stay at Braga. Players like him, those are more earmarked for 2023 MBR. Yeah, I think ultimately for a lot of these guys, I think it's just going to be too late in the cycle again. I'll, I'll recycle the same names because it's kind of, you see the main ones, you know, it's your Diaz's, your Smith's, you know, your Flores's too, on his sake, obviously that's a whole other situation. They have to be at this stage of Canada's World Cup cycle. You can't make bets on the future right, right now. You, you, need, you need, you know, your best squad for the World Cup. So I think those guys, for example, in 2023, if you want to give your guys a break after such a grueling qualifying cycle, I wouldn't be surprised if, say, like the March window, I assume there's a March window or a June window. I guess there is Nations League, which does complicate things. But I wouldn't be surprised if maybe we see some of these guys just included in to give fresh legs and to make sure these guys don't burn out. And then all of a sudden, a guy like, a, you know, a Cooner or a Costa, you know, another one after his strong showing at the U, you know, U20s, uh, some of these other names get called in, uh, even if they're not playing just to or not playing at a first team level, sorry, to kind of, you know, start looking at 2026 and give the fresh legs and give a push to these, these older guys to kind of show that, okay, they're, you know, while you had fun at the 2022 world cup, the future is uh, coming through. So that's what I'd say for any perspective call, like be it from Cooner to guys, we know more of like Diaz and, you know, we've heard a lot more of Justin Smith for me at this stage, they're ultimately going to have to be playing because as much as you're excited about them long-term, uh, I think Canada's next six months, understandably so, it's World Cup. And can he help at the World Cup? He's a young, young, young center back. Like center backs, we have to remember, he's at a position where ideally his prime is going to come seven to eight years from now. So for me, I'm not at all worried about him uh, short term. It's always going to be a long-term thing. And somehow if he ends up starting regularly for Braga, maybe we have a different discussion, but I feel like there's zero rush. TFC and you. With PSG eliminated from the UEFA Women's Champions League and the league wrapping up, any rumors about Jordan Heidema's future or are there any leagues or clubs you would like to see her at? Her path to consistent minutes seems pretty blocked at PSG. Yes, to say the least. It's not easy being on Marie Antoinette Katoto, by the way. Like she is just the scoring rate that what she has is, is ridiculous. So I 100% think a move would be uh, good for Jordan Hoydman. I'm just looking based at the level she plays at. I think uh, that moving to England to join some of her Canadian teammates might actually make a lot of sense. I think with her size, one thing I've noticed when watching Hoydman with PSG and with Canada, uh, she's still learning how to use her frame as a number nine and understand how to be more than just a poacher. And I think go, maybe going to England where she's going to be up against it physically, she's going to have to be a little more engaged. Uh, in games I think that could be a way for for her to kind of continue to grow those skills because I think she's grown a lot in those areas like where she's at now in 2022 versus where she was at at the beginning of 2020 as a number nine is already night and day and I think she continues to to need to push uh, forward but for her right now she's done so much training in a high level environment at a certain point you need to see the field regularly in the starting role and just the, the, the limited amount of big time minutes she's getting you do wonder if maybe you know a club in England, for example, within the top five, maybe not like Chelsea or Arsenal, but maybe maybe like a Tottenham, for example, maybe someone a little low on that, that cusp of the top five could be a way to, to continue to coax those skills out of her. 
She is also only 20. I think we also forget a lot of the time with young Absurdly young. Still how much time they have left in their careers. And when they make jumps like this, we're like, oh, they're, you know, headed to this level. But, you know, players progress differently, right? Sticking with the women, wsoccer.ca. Could you do a bit of a roundup on the Canadian players in Sweden after six match days? So to those who aren't aware, there are eight Canadian eligible players in Sweden's top flight. And I think AGR mentioned there's another four in the second division. So this is very much becoming like the, what Belgium and Scotland is for the men and that this is like their stepping stone over to Europe. So we'll start first with Sarah Stratagakis, who might be the breakout player to watch over the next few months here. She could have had a tremendous assist over the weekend in what was, I believe, a nil-nil draw. She also has a actually two Canadian teammates at Vizio as well. Sabrina D'Angelo started in goal for them. She's a regular starter there. At Christianstad, Gabrielle Carl, kind of an interesting player here, Alex. She plays as like a left back, left-sided center back at times at club level. She played a little more left back over the weekend. Um, went the full 90 there. She's finding herself... As a consistent starter, she started in the 1-0 loss to Jure Garden. Elsewhere for Christian Stad, Evelyn Viet, who I've always been a big fan of. She's posting 0.44 expected goals per 90. Only has the one goal this season. She's also posting an absurd, I think it's 0.37 expected assists. And she has three assists so far this season, which is unbelievable. Because when she was on loan in France, she was banging in the goals. And then just couldn't really oh, find was absurd. that absurd. Now it looks like she's at least getting the amount of chances. She just has to start putting them away at this point. So she's another one to watch for sure. Um, ditto for Paige Culver as well at Kalmar. Sweden is the place to look at if you want to look for up-and-coming women's players. Aru Jan asked, Do you expect to see Diash Zuhir and Jaquil Marshall-Ruddy at the CONCACAF U20s this summer? Marshall Ruddy is very unlikely unless he somehow miraculously recovers over the next month or so. Um, Zuhir, I think it's completely down to Montreal, to be completely honest. Um, we know he's interested. We know that Mauro Biello wanted to bring him into the camp in April. Didn't happen. Um, Lucas Diaz, I'd be shocked if he got called up to the under-20s and accepted the call-up as well, because I think he wants to focus on his club career for now. Finally, a... Uh, Fun question to round out the mailbag here. David K at David underscore Kiesman asked, my favorite part of the CPL is the dude banging out the tunes on the bagpipes at Pacific Games. What musical instrument do you love or hate to hear at games? Vuvuzela, anyone? I'm a big fan of the trumpet, Alex, myself. Sometimes you hear that in South America. Damn. And it really adds to the ambiance there. You really stole my thunder once again, Alex. For me, I think of LAFC games, uh, just like watching them and listening to Trump and you just watch against South American games. Like what I love, and I think one thing that I'd love to see developed in Canada, obviously organically and in their own ways, and I think the bagpipes is, is an example, like they sing in South America. Like it's songs. Like it's just straight up like, it's, like a, it's almost like a concert. There's people banging the drums. Someone's got a trumpet. Someone is just like, 
you hear it and you just want to like, you're just kind of watching the game and you're just going like side to side and jigging and they're just like singing some really deeply emotional song about how this club is like their, their life beat of their ex- entire being and that without soccer, they, they would die. And it's like, it's just something about that. It's so amazing. And the, the, the music adds to that, that whole vibe. Like there's whole songs. Like I think such a random example, but I think Colon, they have that song, uh, I think it's like El Sabanero. It's like a specifically a song written for them. And you think it'd be hard for them to chant, but they just straight up sing this whole song every time they play. And for me, the trumpet adds to, to this whole uh, atmosphere. So I would go trumpet. Any sort of just proper brass musical instrument feels so right uh, at, at games. And you know what? Shout out to the Vuvuzela. People found it annoying. I think we did add that, that kind of atmosphere that, that was almost like, undertone of what was to come it's like mysterious you hear this like and it would kind of i don't know for some reason for whatever reason it just kind of gave me like this this eerie good good vibe that like okay there's something going on and i feel like if anything the only thing with vuvuzela is it'd be nice if they were weaponized more like if they were going and then all of a sudden they like stopped like how eerie would that be if you're listening and then vuvuzelas were going and then they like stopped at random intervals and then started going again so it's not i think more the issue is just that it would drone on all game and kind of fade into the back of your consciousness Whereas like something like a trumpet or a bagpipe, it's cool when it comes on and off and, and kind of makes you think about it. So those are my, my shouts. Over to domestic matters, starting with MLS and specifically CF Montreal, who won their fourth game in their last five and are unbeaten in six after beating Atlanta United 2-1 with Kamal Miller scoring and assisting both goals. Miller might be the obvious choice here, AGR, but was he the Canadian player that impressed you in this one i think for me it had to be uh kamal miller i mean just again for for a center back to have a game as he did on both sides of the ball goal assist strong defensive performance but i mean two shouts i'll give joel waterman continues to be the most steady defender i'd argue right now on cf montreal and uh i think come in in a few weeks time if he keeps this up i will proudly bang the drum for Joel Waterman to can MNT for the June window based on how he's playing and how steady he's been. So shout out him. And then I will shout out Sebastian Brezza. I thought he had one of his recently. He's been quietly rounding into form after a rough patch. And I thought he had a very solid, uh, you know, game in terms of helping Montreal keep it uh, only 0.78 XG. So yes, he did overperform his XG, but I felt like he, he made some, you know, some big saves and is just looking overall some more calm in the net. At the beginning, it felt like he was so stressed and so rushed. And I think we're finally seeing uh, Wilford Nancy sticking with him and ha- how that's paying off in his confidence and his routine and getting minutes under his belt, because we have to remember, he was a very promising 22 year old goalkeeper. Yes. But while he was in the Bologna system, there weren't many opportunities for him. And I think we're finally seeing him get a professional rhythm. And I think that's good. You just, even if you might not see him as your future can MNT goalie or not, depending on how you rate Sinclair Crepo, I think based on his frame, based on his pedigree, if he can figure things out, I think he's an exciting prospect long-term. So I'm happy to see his continued, you know, sustained slow growth. Yeah. And you have to stick with young players a lot of the time. And I know we're going to have this conversation in a bit, but that's just worth repeating. Um, With Miller, defensively a lot better. Did very well to obviously score the goal, get the assist as well. The passing is still off to me though. I think there are times when he's hesitating a little bit and then the lanes close and then it leads to a turnover. Um, That's something that he still has to improve. But we know he can because he's done it before. This is his 
second consecutive season playing as a center back in this system. So it's probably going to have some lulls in between, but he's got to eventually round out into form completely here. But he's slowly, slowly getting there now that this back line has had more games together. And you're seeing it with the... Well, I'll, I'll hop in and say one thing I do note with Miller, because I've noticed he hasn't looked himself. Now, just thinking out loud, how much does he miss having Mathieu Chouinier more of a... Yes. For whatever reason, Chouinier's yes, fit in. Yes. Because uh, I'm thinking last year, Lapalainen, as fun as he's been going forward, I think they miss having a guy like Mathieu Chouinier who dropped in and provided him a little more out yeah. of an outlet. Exactly. One thing I notice is when Kamal Miller is on that left side, sometimes he gets isolated because Lapalainen just shoots forward and forgets that he's a wing back, not a winger. So I will, I think the fact that Mathieu Chouinier is back in training could be very exciting. Cause I think Montreal's filled up their lineup pretty much except their wing back and their second or their second forward behind Kyoto and Mihailovic. So I think right now Chouinier would be a, a huge return for, for them in terms of helping Miller, helping the overall team. I mean, it's worth repeating because I've said it many times too, and, and that's certainly a factor. There are, though, some pretty simple passes and or times when Miller could just not make the pass, and then he still chooses to, and I'm like, but you could have held on to it a little longer, kept possession. Why are you passing it into no man's land and turning it over? But yes, that is a, a good point. So question here from Andrew Thompson. Given that CF Montreal seems to be turning the corner and playing some decent soccer, is there a case for Kamal Miller and Alistair Johnston looking to move to larger clubs? Probably, yes. But probably more so Johnston over Miller. I still think Miller has a little bit of, of a deficiency in his game, certainly with the speed on the turn that might turn some teams off unless they want to put him in the center of a back three. Yeah, I was going to say, if Miller, you could make a great investment by putting him in the middle of a back three. It does sound wild because the thing is with Miller, that frustrates me in a, in a way. It's not a bad thing. He's, he's good going forward. And, it, and the only thing, I feel like that's probably what part of the reason why uh, like he's still playing on the outside of back three, because he'll have a game like this where he'll go forward and get an assist and get a goal, uh, you know, and, and show that he has some offense in him. But long-term, he should be looked at as the center of a back three. Johnson, I think, has more uh, potential from European scouts. And then, of course, like Ismail Kone, don't forget about him. Or I, I mean, I'm sure the question was more reference to the defenders on purpose. But, hey, scouts are going to be looking at Ismail Kone Yes. Maybe there'll be a bit of a rub off effect on, you know, you see that sometimes where you look at a big prospect and you see, you start to notice some of the other players around him. I think that happened a bit with the white caps when Alfonso Davies got sold and all these big teams were looking at it. We saw some, some players get secondary looks at, uh, from clubs. So I think I imagine the same will happen to Miller and Johnston due to the, the gr ever growing East Malcone effect. Star on a similar theme. With Johnston probably moving after this season, Camacho possibly retiring and Miller may be moving to Europe. How does Karifa Yao fit in the Montreal lineup, and what can we expect from him in Montreal and beyond? Speaking of central-based centre-backs who can play in a back three, Alex. Montreal this year, bold, I know, but they really their back five right now should be, from right to left, uh, in a five at the back, should be Johnston, Waterman, Yao, Miller and Schwanier. I'd stand by that. I, you know, Rudy Camacho, I liked him a lot last year, but he just hasn't looked the same this year. I don't know what it is like on the ball. He's making uncharacteristic mistakes. Like last year, he looked so different. Now he's starting to look like the, the Rudy Camacho that we saw in the first few years that drove Montreal fans up the wall. So I think career for Yao is pretty much already ready. I think there's, he's still a young guy. There's a lot of polish to be had in his game. You see it sometimes with cavalry, some rash challenges, 
Uh, he has the, the prone four, but he's, you know, good in the air. He's surprisingly good with the ball, just feet for a big guy. He's adept in a back three. It's only a matter of time for Yao before he knocks down the door himself and opens up a spot. Or if the door opens for him, I think Montreal would be foolish not to give him the opportunity. I'm very high on uh, what Yao is bringing. I think it's, it's a matter of, of time now. Meanwhile, an hour earlier at BMO Field, uh, Toronto FC lost 2-1 to FC Cincinnati in a flat performance overall. In positive news, Io Akinola returned for the first time since tearing his ACL about nine and a half months ago at the Gold Cup. We did get a question following this game, which I think is an interesting conversation to have, Alex. Um, Chris Talks asked, have TFC's youngsters come down to earth? None of the academy kids that have been given decent game time have demonstrated to me they are ready to be playoff team quality MLS starters. Jaquiel Marshall-Ruddy has shown glimpses. Priso and Akinola prove they are MLS starters in the past. I can understand the frustration, but I think it also goes back to what I said off the top of the MLS segment in that young players are going to go through peaks and valleys. And I think right now, after experiencing some very high peaks, certainly Luca Petrasso and Kosi Thompson and Jacob Schaffelberg, they're now experiencing some valleys, but you got to ride through it stick with them, which Bob Bradley is doing to his credit, and just wait for them to hit their peaks again. Because this is what young players do. I was going to say, I feel like a lot of this question, because it's such a, like in terms of the playoff team quality MLS starters, that's a hard, high bar to reach in terms of youngsters being starters on a, in a team. And honestly, I'd echo that question for the rest of TFC, other than Jesus Jimenez, and maybe for flashes, well, actually, and Jonathan Azorio, and then for flashes, Alejandro Pozuelo who is consistently shown to be of a playoff caliber level overall amongst veterans as well on, on the TFC team, because I mean, he's human as wow. Well, what a player he's proven to be. So I think with the youngsters, that's the fact that they're already showing flashes is encouraging because you can, you know, say in a Kosi Thompson or Luca Petrasso's case, I'd fancy them growing a lot more long-term. Whereas someone like Michael Bradley, you're going to, you knowing what, you know what you get at this stage in, in terms of him as, as a player. So I think there's still overall been a lot to be encouraged with. I think this is emblematic of this Toronto team that they're able to win some fun games as they have, and they're now losing games like this. That's just the realities of being a, a young team. But honestly, they're ahead of where I thought they'd be in the project. So I'm, I'm finding it hard to look there and say, these youngsters are disappointing me. If anything, I'm surprised by guys like Kosi Thompson coming in. I don't think anyone had him earmarked. He was probably an MLS next pro starter so the fact that he's already getting regular mls minutes is a huge bonus that he's learning on the job as he has ditto with luca petrasso maybe someone like jacob schaffelberg yes you can be a bit more worried based on what we saw last year but also he's a natural winger and the fact that he's learning a whole new position does buy him uh sometimes so i think that's right now the thing with tfc it's so early on in their process uh, maybe if, if the same mistakes are continuing to happen then we start to ask questions but this is like Peter says, the, this is the lows now. They've had their highs, it's the lows. How do you come out of it stronger? Because it happens to everyone. Name a player, it's possible they've, they've gone through lows no matter how good uh, they are. Heck, there's a, a $50 million striker over in France right now who's, who's going through lows of himself and no one's saying that he's a bad player. So it just kind of shows that it, it, can, it can happen to everybody. It's how you come out through it better than ever. No Vancouver Whitecaps this week. They'll be back in action this upcoming weekend against Toronto FC. That should be a lot of fun. Speaking of which, it was a lighter weekend than usual in the Canadian Premier League, which we will get to a bit later on. But to round up the action, FC Edmonton and Pacific drew nil-nil last Wednesday. 
York United and Atletico Ottawa played to a ridiculous 2-2 draw with York going down to 10, but still salvaging a point in the end. Halifax Wanderers and FC Edmonton then closed out the weekend with Halifax winning that one 3-1 in their home opener. You'll notice the omission of Valor and Forge, who had their game postponed due to league COVID protocols after three Valor players and two coaches tested positive for the virus. So this leads to a question from Grandpa Riley. What effect do you think the postponed Valor game will have on the team? I'm guessing it will kill the momentum built off the Ottawa win. Fairly topical question, given that they are playing the Whitecaps in, what is it now, nine days' time. I think it's a tough, tough blow in terms of timing. I mean, it would have been a tough game at home against Forge. Uh, never easy to play, uh, you know, the two-time champions. But I think just after the momentum of the auto win, you get your home opener where Valor was so good last year at IG Field. That's part of the reason they built out that early lead uh, at the bubble. And it was kind of later on in the season where they had to head out on the road where things kind of fell apart for them. Things were lining up for them. You got that big win. You have the next two games at home. You go to play a very fragile Whitecaps team in a one-game you know, playoff. All of a sudden, now you're kind of resetting your momentum. I mean, it sounds like, you know, barring any further unforeseen cases, part of the reason why things were halted early uh, and, you know, as, as precautionary measures was to, to hopefully get Valor back on the field in time for this Wanderers game on, on Saturday at home, thankfully, so they don't have to travel either, which also does help them. But it would have really been beneficial to have a home game forge, home game against Halifax. You head into Vancouver brimming, hopefully, with confidence, whereas now they might have to, to, to hit a stop start. But I think this Halifax game was, should still be some time for them to regain some momentum, but I just think they maybe lost a bit of runway on what would have been a perfect situation. Michael Lefebvre. How long until Bustos and those few other players in the CPL who seem to just be at another level move on to higher leagues? Do you have three names who could be those guys? Certainly Bustos could be a more than capable MLS squad player. Oh, for sure. I think he's he's ready. I think he's uh, shown to be, and there's a lot of guys like that. I think it's interesting because it's, it's a good mix of guys like veterans. I'd say like guys like Amir Didich, you know, maybe a little older, but I think he could, again, very much do a job in, in, a, in a league like that. Uh, you know, you, you look across the the board, heck, a Dominic Zator over at York, for sure. Even, you know, it's, there's so many, for me, I think it's ultimately going to come down to, to role, if anything, because there's an interesting discussion that you had on Twitter. I saw about someone like Krisnovich Insa, for example, Two years ago, you thought he would have been a box-to-box right back in, in MLS. Based now, he's playing for Halifax, uh, whereas now he's playing as like a borderline third center back. And while that obviously might be less exciting to see because it was Inso in, in that that year with Halifax, especially the Island Games, he was he was so fun to watch. Whereas now it's maybe a little more boring. That sort of back three versatile right center back defender could be very attractive to a lot of MLS teams, and I think. Uh, ultimately based on the level of talent in the league other than guys maybe like a bustos uh, you know a guy is just playing that well much out of his skin or even at this right as as rosario based on the flashes he's showing as a player uh, there's, there's a lot of guys where it's going to come down to roll and fit because someone like me diadine abzi should be playing in, in mls right now like the white the fact that the white caps didn't sign him as a left wing back when they were looking for one uh, you know, because of that, it shows that a lot of guys, it's going to really depend on the needs of the teams in, in MLS. Because I think there's really, honestly, about a dozen to 24 players in the CPL. Maybe not 24, but more close to a dozen of guys who I could, honestly, if I was picking to round out an MLS team, I'd take them. 
And in terms of the younger players, I, I wrote about this on TFC Republic, John Molinaro's website, but I looked at seven youngsters who I think could make a real jump in 2022. Two guys to watch for over the next year. Sean Young at Pacific, who I'm a massive, massive fan of. And when Alessandro Hojabrapur, as well as Taryn Campbell, went to Forge, I was like, eh, Hojabrapur is not that big of a loss because he got Sean Young there. like, And he's proven it so far this season. And Victor Loturi at Cavalry, who could be a real good player at an MLS level in the next year or two, I feel, for sure. Um, because we've talked about all domestic matters here, Alex, um, let's round it up with... Um, this question on the Canadian Championship, which does start next week. Uh, Kyle Chapman asked, with the Canadian Championship starting next week, which matchup is most compelling? Can we continue to see CPL teams close the gap to MLS teams? I feel like there's only one answer here, given that we've already teased it, but uh, I'll, I'll let you break it down. Vancouver Whitecaps, Valor FC. Vancouver Whitecaps never won against the CPL side Crazy. at home. Come on, that's that's gonna be that's gonna be must-watch TV. So in terms of matchups there, um, I will shout out Halifax heading to Guelph. Yes. That could be a potential fun one. I think just any sort of lower league, the other ones like you know the Owl Classico, you, you know that's like the third year in a row we've seen that matchup early rounds, and it's not really been exciting in either of them. So that one maybe not so much. Atletico York, same deal. I think. I mean, based on their game recently, maybe it will be. It'll be fun. Uh, and otherwise, yeah, Forge Outremont, just the fact that Outremont has to travel to Forge is also going to make it tough. So if I'm going to highlight two, I'm going to go Guelph, Halifax, Vancouver, Valor. And in terms of the, 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 the question, obviously, to answer that in terms of level, I think it's a lot closer than we, people realize, but it's also a lot further, if that makes sense. Like, I think there's players. Like, you look at Pacific, for example, especially that team they rolled out against the Whitecaps. That Whitecaps side was a good team, too. It's not like you can say and like, okay, at least they were awful, like, say, this year. They still made a playoff with much of the roster who played that faithful day in Langford. If anything, that's a credit to Pacific that Bustos, who didn't even play that game. That's funny. I have to, I have to remember he didn't play that game, that's but right. Bustos was in the lineup. Manny Aparicio, though, who was massively slept on. You know, Taron Campbell, who scored, Alejandro Diaz, who scored, Josh Hurd. You know, you look at a list of guys who played in that game. There's probably a half dozen guys who I'd say could play in MLS uh, who played that Caden Chong, Lucas McNaughton, both in MLS right now. And I think that's the difference. I think it's going to be depending on which teams, how much of those quality players they have, because I think that's the one difference in the CPL. Some teams like Forge and Pacific have more of those higher quality players, Cavalry, where some others might not. Uh, so I think ultimately uh, right now, in terms of top end players on CPL rosters, there's enough to contend with MLS. It's really going to come down to depth. It's going to come down to who the MLS teams have out on the field as well uh, in terms of their options. So uh, I think in terms of the top players, the, the CPL gap to MLS gap isn't as extraordinary as you think. Obviously, in some cases, there's exceptions like Lorenzo Insigne to Marco Bustos. As much as I like Marco Bustos, that's still a very, very significant gap. But, uh, you know, say Marco Bustos to say the, 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 you know, one of the top five players on the Whitecaps roster, it's not actually that, that outrageous, I'd say. I would agree with that. Kyle did also ask about in the future, could you see the tournament expanding to include more teams from L1O, PLSQ, and L1BC? More excitement and continued growth at the lower level. I think the League One Canada coalition 
that's the goal for these semi-professional teams to continually be involved, get more of them in there. And then with the sponsorship deals, they can lock up themselves. They may not have to rely on the CSA for travel budgets and all that in the next couple of years. Well, as I unfortunately get reminded of every time I put out my dream uh, Voyager Cups expansions, yes, money is something they have to consider. And I think with Canada's geographical makeup, it's a, one annoying thing is we're, an advantage, say in England, we'll use England as the famed example, the FA Cup over like thousands of teams enter the, the FA Cup in total. Part of the reason that's great is that you come in, there's the travel so easy. You can bust down in a day to play most of your opponents, even if it's Tottenham Hotspur, if it's like Wrexham, maybe not Wrexham because they're over in Wales, but you, you get my idea. Like there's not this, there's this, yeah, even the trip to Wales isn't ridiculous. Whereas Canada, if you're say some amateur side from the VISL, the, the, the Vancouver Island league, and you get drawn with the Halifax Wanderers, that's not an easy trip to, to have to make with your entire team your entire staff, et cetera. So I think it's Canada's going to have to get creative with how they make it. Like maybe it's something where in the early rounds it's regional, like in the U S open cup. And then as the rounds, the rounds go on, then maybe there's some sort of travel subsidiaries prize money kind of covers it. So then if a team from Vancouver Island makes the quarterfinals and they play Halifax, then it's possible. But I think in a dream world, absolutely. I think it would be great for uh, cup competitions to kind of really grow the grassroots uh, of the game. Cause I, I think people aren't, they'll see this in the FA cup. I think it would be so magical to see more stories like, uh, you know, this Guelph United hosting Halifax or, you know, say Guelph beats Halifax and up hosting an MLS team down the road. Like they, they could host Toronto. The storylines of having a guy like Alejandro Pozuelo travel out to Guelph to play a soccer game. The more stories like that, the better for, for Canadian soccer. So I think ultimately it should be a goal. And I think something that they'll be looking at, but ultimately it's, it's finances and Hey, Maybe that's a forgotten part of the World Cup money we talk about. Going into national domestic cup competitions could be an area where some of those funds could be very well served to to really make this tournament better. Because I think, yes, in North America, we love our leagues, we love our playoffs, but I think growing cup competitions could be a very underrated part of of, uh, that that multifaceted quest towards becoming a soccer nation that Canada is, uh, is on at the moment. For sure. And that is something I hope they actually do dedicate some of the money towards. To the news and notes, we begin here with the Canadian women's under-17 team who've made the quarterfinals since we last spoke, defeating Honduras 4-1 in the round of 16. They will face Costa Rica on Wednesday in the quarters. Advancing to the semis could mean that there is a date with the U.S. with the winner qualifying for the U-17 World Cup. Even if they lose that, though, they can still qualify via the third place match, so not all hope is lost. Kamal Miller and Mark Anthony Kay were named to the MLS Team of the Week to add some Canadian flavor into that 11. And Arabim Peppel has rejoined Cavalry after departing the club after the Island Games in 2020 and multiple trials elsewhere. Crazy to think he is still 19 years old. Other than that, just some last notes. The NWSL kicked off officially this weekend in the regular season. Uh, so there's some strong Canadian performances there. Vanessa Gill opened the weekend. Her first regular season game with Angel City scored inside three minutes en route to a win there. So shout out to that. Uh, Christine Sinclair continues to score goals uh, as she gets older, uh, scoring a huge goal in a Portland Thorns 3-0 win. Uh, also Bianca St. George, a very forgotten player in the Canadian uh, 
a fullback pool scored. I'll go in her first game of the regular season. She's playing wingback right now for, for Chicago Red Stars and has been very fun to watch in preseason and, and now in the regular season. And lastly, Kaylin Sheridan also kept a shout out in, in her first regular season appearance with the San Diego Wave. So I thought uh, it's nice to see the NWSL back this weekend, some strong performers there. And I think uh, as Canada gets into these World Cup qualifiers in the summer and obviously the June window that precedes it, some of these NWSL players, especially someone like St. George and, and some of the others, it's going to be fun to see how they progress because uh, over, over the last few you know years, for example, or I guess a year and a half under Bev Priestman, she's really loved the European players. And that's been great because there's been a lot of good players coming in, like seeing someone like Mary Levasseur, for example. But now having Bianca St. George's in the form she's in, for example, I think that's going to be super fun to see that battle. So uh, just worth a shout out. More Canadian content is always a good thing. So that'll do it for us this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. For Alexander Gongay-Ruzik, I am Peter Galindo. We will chat to you, hopefully with Thomas Neff, the next time. Same time, same place, next week.